September 24, 2014, Hari Han, Associate Professor of Political Science at Wellesley College, presented a seminar at the Ash Center on her new book titled, How Organizations Develop Activists, Civic Associations and Leadership in the 21st Century. Sarah Hodgden, National Director of the Sierra Club, also gave remarks, and Jane Mansbridge, Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values, provided a response. The seminar was moderated by Arkan Fung, Academic Dean of the Harvard Kennedy School. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy series celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. Welcome everyone to uh, this afternoon's Democracy Seminar. Uh, tonight is a relaunch of sorts for the second year of our Challenges to Democracy series, our public dialogue series, in commemoration of the Ash Center's 10th anniversary. Um, we are hosting a series of events, hopefully that will cover 10 themes, since it's our 10, 10th anniversary, uh, bridging together scholars and practitioners in a variety of formats, some public talks like this, some workshops, some larger events uh, in the IOP's forum. Uh, and the purpose of this series is to consider and reflect upon and hopefully uh, illuminate some solutions to the chal greatest challenges to American democracy. Tonight, we begin a series of discussions on the power of popular social movements and perhaps more importantly, what can be done to revitalize public engagement in America. The focus of tonight's discussion will be on my friend Hari Han's excellent new book, How Organiza Organizations Develop Activists, Civic Associations, and Leadership in the 21st Century. If you haven't seen the book, or if you don't own it, buy it after this event. Um, <laughs> Uh, because it's very good. The book has uh, many virtues, and I would like to highlight four of them. Uh, first, the book really takes organizations seriously in the participation literature. So per, uh, political scientists who examine participation often try to explain who participates more or less in politics based on individual characteristics like their socioeconomic status or uh, who they're connected to or the amount of time and money and resources that they can command. Uh, Hari's book goes way beyond that and examines the ways in which organizations sometimes do but sometimes do less successfully engage people in the political process and, uh, and the public get them to engage publicly. The second virtue of the book is that it takes agency and leadership seriously. And this I view as a contribution to the social movements literature. And that literature has a tendency to be structuralist in its orientation, to look for the success and failure of movements and organizations based on the structural opportunities or constraints that they face. Hari's book is all about agency and choices that organizations like the Sierra Club and others make in forming constituencies, trying to develop leaders um, and get them engaged in the public process. Um, a little bit more inside baseball, I think the third virtue of the book is that it takes multiple methods seriously. And the book is divided methodologically into roughly two parts. The first part of the book, it, Hari explores um, 
some hypothesis. She comes up with this observation that some chapters are able to engage members in a much more deep and sustained way than other chapters of popular engagement organizations, and that raises a natural question, why might that be? And out of that observational study, she develops several hypotheses, but um, as your colleagues uh, over at the uh, Poverty Action Lab and other places will tell you, you can't really know with an observational study. The only real way to know is with an experiment. And that's what the second part of the book does, is actually construct some experiments to test these hypotheses that she develops. And it's um, rarely a project, uh, th there aren't very many projects that develop both of those legs uh, very seriously uh, in an equal kind of way that gets interesting hypotheses out there in the world and then really uses experiments to, um, to further explore them and uh, test them. Uh, the fourth virtue, which I think is most important, is that uh, Hari's book produces this kind of social science you can actually use. Um, <laughs> unlike interventions tested in many kinds of field experiments, these interventions are shovel-ready in the sense that there are many organizational leaders who have the motive, the means, and the opportunity to utilize the results of the work. They address an important problem, maybe the most urgent problem, that many organizational leaders face, which is how to form active constituencies and leaders. And she makes an argument and presents a lot of evidence that there are better and worse ways to do that and that it's systematic. And this is a, a very important finding. Um, tonight, Hari's going to talk much more about the book. And then uh, she'll be joined by Sarah Hodgden of the Sierra Club. Uh, who will offer some thoughts based on her long experience in organizing and mobilizing, and then Jane Mansbridge will comment. Allow me just a moment to introduce tonight's speakers. Hari Han is an associate professor of political science at Wellesley College and was a Robert Wood Johnson health policy scholar at Harvard from 2009 to 11. She specializes in American politics, focusing in particular on civic associations and the role they play in mobilizing participation and in political advocacy. In addition to the book that she's discussing tonight, how, uh, how uh, organizations develop activists, she has also uh, published, or is it out yet, Groundbreakers? It's just a couple months. Right, so the proofs are done, but the book is in press. Uh, forthcoming book, Groundbreakers, How Obama's 2.1 Million Activists Transformed uh, field campaigns in America. So she's uh, published two books in the time that it takes most people to write an article or an article and a half on a, in a good period. Um, she was awarded the 2013 Outstanding Academic Publication on Membership Organizations Award by the Institute for Nonprofit Research, Education, and Engagement. She also works in the world of practice consulting for a wide range of civic and political organizations. And um, I'm very happy to be uh, working with her in a collaborative project along with Marshall and a few other people called the Gettysburg Project. And um, we're going to have a big meeting of that in, in just a week or so. So that's kind of scary. Um, <laughs> the uh, second speaker for tonight is Sarah Hodgden. Uh, she is the Sierra Club's National Program Director, uh, fresh off the climate march and the UN General Disc uh, Assembly discussions on climate change. In this, role, uh, in this role, she oversees the organization's national campaigns, including Beyond Coal, Beyond Oil, and Our Wild America. Um, you'll be happy to know that the, Richard Parker sent me this email. The Kennedy School, uh, the Harvard University sent out 
an effort to get faculty to endorse a letter to get the university to divest its holdings in Fossil. Um, and uh, not so many faculty signed, but eight times more faculty at the Kenny School signed than the business school. So, <laughs> so there you have it. Jenny, Jenny signed it. Um, uh, uh, so she uh, works on coal beyond oil and our wild America, as well as the club's political outings and partnership programs with labor, uh, environmental justice groups, and youth. Um, she leads the organization's staff diversity team and serves on the founding body of the BEA initiative, which works to create a more inclusive, connecting, and winning environmental movement. Jane Mansbridge is the Adams Professor of Political Leadership and Democratic Values and a close friend, mentor of mine, uh, and a uh, uh, faculty member at the Ash Center. She's, close, uh, she's the author of a number of uh, seminal texts on democratic institutions and also on social movements, including Beyond, Beyond Adversary Democracy and, of course, Why We Lost the ERA. She's editor and co-editor of, of the volume Beyond Self-Interest, Feminism and Oppositional Consciousness. Uh, she is, uh, I guess, a year ago now, served as the president of the American Political Science Association. And her work, uh, it, uh, her current work includes studies of representation, deliberation, everyday activism, feminism, and understanding collective action problems. So let me turn it over to Hari. Great. Can you guys hear me? Um, so I just want to start by um, turning on the screen. but. Um, but also just by thanking Tim and Melissa and Archon and everyone for hosting this event and for everyone for coming out today. Um, I really appreciate all of you being here. I'm excited to talk about the book and also to hear um, Sarah and Jenny's comments about it. Um, what I thought that I would do is just start by giving you an overview of you know, some of the key points that I tried to make in the book. And then I'm eager to hear um, the feedback on it. Um, but what, before I sort of go into the overview of the book, I thought it might be helpful to sort of talk about why it was that I came to this question and how I came to sort of think about it. And really, the way that the, um, the project evolved for me was you know, starting you know, with Occupy Wall Street and a lot of the sort of recent um, moments of activism that we've seen in recent years, from Occupy to um, the Arab Spring, you know, to the outcry around Trayvon Martin, and then you know, the trend towards lots of tra open government and things like that. What I felt like was, on the one hand, there was this one narrative that was coming out where it seemed like the 21st century was enabling more participation than ever. More people were getting involved than ever. Government was more open to popular input. And so maybe this was really the time of the people, right? But on the other hand, as that narrative was, that narrative was sort of being told, I felt like I was hearing another narrative from a lot of people that I was working with, where there were a lot of organizations that were able to get more signatures on a petition, let's say, or more people involved, but they didn't feel like they were really building the power they needed to win the, the, the wins that they wanted. And alongside that, we saw with things like Occupy or the Arab Spring that even if they may have been able to win some short-term gains, they weren't really able to protect those wins over time. And so part of what made me ask this question was thinking, well, how do we reconcile those two narratives? Right? How is it that on the one hand, more people than ever are getting involved and government is more open than ever to public input, but on the other hand, it doesn't feel like people are necessarily building the power that they really want. And so I went around um, looking for um, different answers to that question. And what I felt like I was hearing in a lot of ways, and obviously I'm giving a very stylized narrative <laughs> here, but 
you know, it sort of it sort of felt like a lot of what I was hearing people, both in academia and outside academia, saying is that you know you have some people and they sort of join these organizations like the Sierra Club and other organizations, and then some kind of magic happens within that organization, <laughs> and then like ta-da, like there's a social movement, you know, on the other end, or some kind of activism, you know, emerges on the other end. And you know, obviously, I'm giving a very stylized narrative, and there are some notable exceptions to this, including the work of some people in this room. But the point that I'm trying to make is that I felt like there was a really strong story that was out there where when we were looking for answers as to why is it that some people get involved in activism and others, or why do certain protest move, movements emerge, what we do is we look for answers that are outside the organization. right? And so we were looking at things like, what is the context, the social context within which um, certain grievances were coming out, or who were the people that were getting involved, and how do we use targeting and analytics to find people who are more likely to get involved. Um, and what we weren't looking at really was what was going on inside this black box of the organization. And so what I wanted to do in the study then was really focus in on that black box and try to uncover what was going on um, within the organization. And so I'll spare you all the um, methodological details here, but basically what I went out and did was sort of try to identify um, some, you know, paired cases, where, matched cases, where there was two organizations working on the same issue in very similar communities, but one of them was really good at getting lots of people involved and sustaining that activism over time, whereas the other was struggling more. Right? And the question was, what differentiated those that were having more success from the ones that were not having as much success. And that's really sort of what I did. And as Archon described, I spent a couple years um, hanging out with these organizations, doing a lot of interviews, uh, you know, kind of getting to know the practices and the ways in which they worked um, within the organizations, and then um, ran some experiments with them to try to understand sort of what the impact was of the work that they were doing. And the story that really came out was that what I found was that, you know, as as all these organizations are out there trying to engage people in activism in different ways, they had different models in their head, or they had different strategies that they were using for how to engage people. And so one way to think about it is you can imagine that for a lot of these organizations, they all have this kind of activist ladder in their heads, right? So on the one hand, there are some people who do nothing more than affiliate with the organization, right? Maybe they'll pay their $35 to join the Sierra Club, or maybe they'll get their name on an email list, and they'll somehow affiliate, but they don't want to do anything more than that. Um, and then above that, you can imagine sort of different tiers of activism that people will engage in. So there are some people who will say, look, you know, I'm willing to come in three hours a week and stuff envelopes for you, but that's it. Right? And if I get 100 envelopes stuffed during that time, that's great. And if I get 50 envelopes stuffed in, during that time, it doesn't really matter. I, you only have me for three hours. Or you know, I'll take the time to read your emails and click on your links, but I won't really take any responsibility beyond that. Whereas you know, people at the next tier up, they would actually take responsibility for outcomes. I'll get 100 people to show up to your meeting, or I'll get 50 people to show up to your meeting, and I'll put in whatever time it takes for that to happen. And then at the very top are people that would not only commit to outcomes, but sort of commit to sort of developing the leadership of other people alongside that. And what I found was that you know, there are some organizations that I called mobilizers. And what they would do essentially is they would let people self-select onto whatever, wherever they wanted to be on that ladder, right? So if I'm someone who just wanted to come and affiliate with the organization, then I would just self-select right onto that, then the organization would let me do that. And if I happen to be someone who is ready to take on more leadership and commit to taking responsibility for an outcome, then the organization would let me do that too. And essentially what was happening was that the organizations kind of saw their job 
as being one of trying to create opportunities for people at all levels of the ladder. Right? And if they needed more people to get involved, then what they would do is try to go out and find more people. Right? They, would, they would use all of you know, the analytics and targeting to sort of find more people who could self-select onto the places that they needed more people. And on the other hand, what I saw was that there were some other organizations that were doing what I called organizing. And what the organizers really did is instead of letting people self-select onto the ladder, they were really trying to create an infrastructure within the organization that would cultivate people's capacity for activism. Right? So it wasn't just that they would take you wherever you are and say, you know, all you want to give us is an hour a week, fine. Like We have a job for you. Right? But instead, they would say, oh, you're coming in. What you're ready to give us is an hour a week. But then they would work to sort of develop people's motivations, their skills, their strategies, and their capacities to sort of do more, to really create an infrastructure for them to develop their agency. And in doing so, that would sort of push people up this activist ladder, in a sense. Um, and, and you know, in spending time with these organizations over a couple years, what I found was that you know, these different strategies for engagement, it wasn't just about, it wasn't just sort of a mental model that they had in their heads, but it really affected all sorts of choices they made about how they structured themselves, what kind of asks they made, how they reached out to people. And so, you know, the people who are mobilizers differed in lots of different ways from, from people who are organizers. And so just a few differences that I'll highlight here, you know, is that mobilizers, you know, if you ask them kind of, you know, if you ask um, organizations that were engaging mostly mobilizing, you know, well, how do you build your power, right? How is it that you build power that you want for the change that you need? They'd say, well, we want more, more people, right? We just want more people to do more things. Whereas the organizers were really focused more on this idea of transformative leaders, right? We build power by transforming people's capacity to be leaders so that they can then, you know, act on their goals, engage others in activism, and so on and so forth. And so then that had implications for how they built membership, right? Um, whereas the mobilizers would try to, would focus a lot on targeting, right? Um, using a lot of tools to try to identify people who are most likely to get involved in the ways that they wanted and who had latent interest in getting involved and getting them opportunities to get involved. You know, organizers were more focused on sort of building out you know, what we think of as a distributed network of leaders, right? And then building the capacity of those leaders to do work, you know, in their local communities. Um, you know, mobilizers are more had much, were much more likely to sort of centralize responsibility. So often what I saw in these kind of organizations is that they had five leaders or three leaders or even one leader in some cases who were making all the decisions, right? And they were the ones that were doing all the work of trying to get people involved as opposed to organizers that were distributing the responsibility out to a lot of people so that um, you had more people who were taking on leadership. Um, and then, you know, alongside that, since they were giving leaders a lot more responsibility, they gave them a lot more support, a lot more training, a lot more coaching, you know, whereas for mobilizers, they didn't really need to give people support because they weren't asking them to do anything that they didn't already know how to do, so to speak. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I found that was really interesting is that, you know, there's a lot, of, there's a common narrative that if you want to get people involved, what you should do is make it as easy as possible for people to get involved, right? Is that give them things that are quick and easy to do and make it really simple for them to get involved. And what I found was that for mobilizers who were focused only on trying to get more people to do more things, that's what they did. They asked people to do things that, where they could work independently and do it really quickly, whereas the organizers, you know, they were much more focused on asking people to do things that forced them to work with others. Right, force them to come into contact with others in some ways so that they would then develop those relationships that would begin to sort of cultivate um, their leadership. And so the one thing that I should say is that I think it's really easy to 
um, think about the distinction between mobilizing and organizing as being between online and offline, but I didn't find that to be true, right? You can do organizing, um, you, can, you, can, you can work off, offline, right? We've all known people who've done door-to-door -door canvassing, for example, that's just like a mobilizing strategy, right? And you can do work online in a way that tries to sort of build relationships and, and build leadership. So the distinction wasn't so much online and offline, but more about the strategy for how they were thinking about building, um, building leadership. And, what I found in the end was that the organizations that had the highest rates of activism consistently over time were the ones that blended both mobilizing and organizing, right? So it wasn't that they just did one or the other, but it was that the organizing allowed them to go deep, right, and, and, and build the leaders that they needed, but then the mobilizing allowed them to go broad, right, and get the breath that they needed. And so it was that, it was that combination of going both deep and broad that enabled them to over time, sustain the highest rates of activism that, um, that they wanted. And so, you know, so then the question in, a, in the end, in some sense, is like, well, does this, does this all make a difference? It turns out that's, that's a little bit blurry. But, you know, one of the things I did was I sort of I, um, looked at, um, you know, I, I tried, so what I did was I identified organizations that historically had had high rates of activism compared to the organizations that historically had low rates of activism, and then surveyed a group of their members right when they joined each of those organizations, right? So these are people who had just gotten into these organizations, and then I surveyed those same people a year later to see how different was it, right? And what I found was that the people who joined were pretty similar to each other, right? The people who were joining the low engagement organizations weren't different from the people who were joining the high engagement organizations, but a year later, their rates of activism were a lot higher, right? And so the people that were doing the organizing and the mobilizing, they were likely to get about nine percentage points more higher rates of activism than people that were doing just the mobilizing. Yeah. Yeah. How am I defining activism? So the kind of um, activism now I'm looking at, so the way I define it in the book is sort of um, any kind of activity, political activity that's designed to sort of, um, that is intensive in some form, right? So intensive can mean, um, you know, sustained over time. It can be intensive in sort of, you know, um, giving, being risky. It can be intensive on a variety of different dimensions. But in practice, what it ended up looking at was people that were doing anything from, um, you know, consistently responding to, to online appeals, to people who are showing up for events, to people who are taking on leadership. Does that make sense? Um, so, so I wasn't looking at people who, like, you know, got on an email list and then, you know, clicked on one email and then didn't respond again. I was interested in sort of that persistence of activism over time. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know, I, don't, I, know, I only know a little bit about how Avas, Avas works. They, they work primarily online, right? And my understanding of how they work is that they, work, they have primarily more of a mobilizing model where they're just trying to sort of build out their list of people, get more people to take on action. I don't know if they also have an organizing component, but that kind of action that they're talking about, I would count as activism, but it would, it would look more like mobilizing than it would like organizing. What kind of action? What kind of, I'm sorry? Yeah, well, so in, in the study, the kinds of activity I was looking at was everything from, you know, signing a petition online, right, and sort of taking that kind of action, to coming to, you know, events like the People's Climate March and, and, and rallies and things like that. I didn't, in my study, have anyone who engaged in civil disobedience, but that wouldn't be outside the scope of the way that I would think about what activism is. Um, 
And so, yeah, so actually, so I'll, I'll wrap up here, but you know, the one last comment I want to make is so, you know, I think um, part of what we saw at the People's Climate March this past weekend, which I hope you know, Sarah will tell us more about, was really, you know, we had 400,000 people who came together in, in one way, and I think a lot of what was exciting about that is that a lot of the climate groups that were working around that really did this blending of both mobilizing and organizing so, so that they were able to um, get people out. And as I was preparing the slides this morning, I found this um, great picture of Sarah, who was at the Climate March, um, you know, leading, leading groups of us here, and so we're very lucky to have her here um, to tell us more about how it worked. <laughs> So, can you hear me? Yeah. So I went from the climate march on Sunday, which was one of the most incredible days of my career, to yesterday being at the climate summit at the UN, uh, which was also in its own way incredible, but not at all uh, where I feel at home. And so being back here in a conversation about organizing is much more comfortable. And so I'm really excited to be here with all of you tonight and have this conversation about Hari's book. And um, reading her book uh, kind of made me feel like I was reading a book about my own organization, which I was. Because it doesn't <laughs> <laughs> um, say Sierra Club in the book. It doesn't say Sierra Club. in. <laughs> um, but these are the kind of conversations that uh, Sierra Club has really been grappling with as we think about the, uh, the outcomes that we want to achieve in the world and really what's going to be the most effective way for us to achieve them. And it's not like Sierra Club hasn't been a grassroots organization for our long history since 1892. Um, we call ourselves the oldest and largest grassroots environmental organization. We have a grassroots democracy where our local leaders are democratically elected and our national leaders are democratically elected. Um, and really the organization's leadership comes from volunteers um, in our 63 chapters and our 400 groups across the country. Uh, but one of the things uh, that Marshall Gans found when he did a study of Sierra Club about a decade ago, maybe even a little bit longer now, um, which is crazy um, that it's been so long, but is that we have a highly educated uh, uh, membership base that is inclined toward policy. So sometimes um, I meet volunteers who are incredibly dedicated. I am blown away by the kind of dedication that Sierra Club volunteers have. But many of them know way more than I know or ever will know about lots of issues, both locally and nationally and really um, enjoy reading environmental impact statements, looking at policy analysis, writing statements, um, testifying at public hearings. And so I think one of the central questions as we're thinking about how is Sierra Club effective in a climate movement and really working to take on these major changes in the world is thinking about how do we build on that level of commitment and that policy expertise but really become much more of an organizing organization um, that brings in so many more people than we have in the past. Um, and so we kind of have the DNA by being a grassroots organization, but it's also been a very intentional process to think about how to get there, uh, building on the study that Marshall did. Uh, we, we worked for several years on a project called the Leadership Development Project, which was very intensive with uh, several of our chapters around the country, starting to help them think about 
Um, how do they become more recruitment oriented? How do they start building teams that are inter interdependent and really doing work together to achieve our goals? And I feel like as someone who came into the organization in 2007, just as that project was underway, it was very influential for me. And so when I became the national program director, um, just at the time that the climate bill was, was being considered in Congress, um, I really started thinking about how do we uh, work across the organization using that model that was coming out of the leadership development project to be something that was central to the way Sierra Club is doing work. Um, because I think what we saw out of the climate bill was that we fundamentally did not have the power at the start of that or the end of that to pass a major piece of climate legislation. Um, and so we started working, one of the first things I did in my first year as the uh, national program director was revamping our organizing model. We have over 100 organizers across the country um, and then lots of leaders who think of themselves in the same way as our paid organizers. And many of them thought of themselves primarily as representatives of the organization so that they would be the ones to speak at a public hearing or they would be the ones to testif uh, testify or speak at a press conference. And we really worked on instilling a value of them becoming organizers of organizers and really worked to put in place some measurement and metrics to uh, think about their success that was about the development of leaders. What was interesting is that we've had this ongoing conversation. I was really pushing at the time that, that the primary measure was the development of leaders. But then our folks who were doing the work on the ground kept coming back and saying, we also have to measure participants. And I kept, oh, I don't know if I agree with that. But then reading Hari's book, this measurement of uh, looking both at organizing and mobilizing and how both make a difference, I understand why that push came back up from the ground. Um, and then one of the other things, we had a program uh, probably 15 years ago now that we were working to build political power and that was our primary focus. Um, and it was almost done in the absence of a campaign outcome. So one of the big things that we learned and that we've been applying is that having the, the specific campaign outcome that we're mobilizing around is incredibly important as we're thinking about developing people's leadership. Um, there were, this was not and has, is still going on. It's not an easy transition for the organization. It's not something that's happened overnight. I mean, here we are more than a decade later. We're still working on it. Um, and the fact that um, our funding changed quite a bit um, over this time, that uh, funding in the nonprofit sector and among environmental organizations has gone from being uh, largely coming in from membership and therefore very flexible to uh, much more restricted dollars from foundations and donors um, has really, so those two things kind of uh, met at once that we were trying to increase this organizing while at the same time having much more restricted end goals. And that required us to put in place a matrix management where folks are both thinking about meeting this particular end goal that a donor is expecting while the organization is trying to build up and develop new leaders. Um, I think it has a lot of value and it's been really rich and interesting, but it hasn't been easy for the people who are on the ground who are grappling with that every day. Um, and the story I wanted to tell you that I feel really excited about where we've seen this work well is in the Pacific Northwest, 
where you all may have seen some of the news about the work that folks are doing to stop the coal export terminals that are uh, being proposed along the coast and having incredible successes stopping them. Um, and we hope keeping U.S. coal out of the Asian markets where they were all uh, to be shipped. Um, and we feel like at the Sierra Club that that's a way where we have primarily a domestic focus. We can actually make a difference as we're thinking about coal plants being built in China and India is actually how do we stop these coal terminals. Um, well, we knew that we had some organizers in the region, but we did not have uh, organizers who could work in every community along the path of the train. So we used this model that Hari talks about in her book. Uh, where the organizer was not doing the work in that community but actually building teams of people and each of those teams was then uh, coming together and independently working to figure out what is it that we'll do in our community to help stop the coal trains. And uh, we saw that that led to enormous turnout about public hearings. It just kind of blew us away how many people were coming out, the kind of incredible depth and passion and commitment uh, that we were seeing around this issue. And then ultimately um, seeing success, it was just last week, I believe, that one of the uh, Oregon terminals was, was ultimately defeated. Um, and then also we're in the midst of thinking about where do we go next as an organization. Uh, we had a climate movement task force that came together over the last year to think about how is the organization moving forward over the next three to five years, and we partnered with Hari and some um, other folks that she helped us bring in. We did uh, a, a very intensive survey of the organization using online surveys, using a dialogue process that many of our chapters participated in where they had conversations and then sent back in the results. Um, and Hari helped us to kind of sort through that and interpret the results that we were hearing. Um, and ultimately, we were thinking about how are we operating at the scale and intensity to build a base of supporters and collaborate with others as part of a larger movement. And one of the kind of aha moments for us as we were in the discussions about this is we'd been thinking for several years about movement building, uh, but being able to separate what is it that Sierra Club's doing that's contributing to a movement um, and what are we doing that's building our own base of supporters and actually thinking about activities that were separate in those two categories. But then doing it all under a banner of 100% clean energy as something that unifies people who are working at whatever uh, location or level of the Sierra Club. Um, we, we talked a lot about um, for building a base of supporters we're putting in place now. Um, Robin Mann, who's here from the Sierra Club Board of Directors, is co-leading with me a Next Steps Task Force. We're looking at how are we putting in place ways to deepen skills of our leaders. Um, how, are we looking, how are we connecting local stories to national stories so people understand that the local matters? What tools are we providing that are helping people to do that outreach and recruitment? What new leadership opportunities are we providing at every level of the organization? How are we increasing the visibility of volunteer leaders so it's not just staff that are in every news story but that we're showing actually volunteer leadership? And then actually one of the most difficult things is how are we tracking all of this and putting in place the systems that allow us to have meaningful data to analyze? So that was the base of support. Then thinking about the contributing to a broader movement 
Um, how is Sierra Club helping to provide a story and a narrative that gives vision, a vision for where we're going and the urgency for doing it now? How are we helping by providing local victories through our chapters and groups that are part of that national narrative? How are we helping to build up on movement moments like the one that we had this past weekend with the People's Climate March? Who are the leaders that are coming out of the Sierra Club network that are trained and ready to take on movement leadership? And what are the relationships that we're building with other organizations? And in particular, we've put a lot of focus on building relationships with labor, environmental justice, um, some of the clean energy partners, and youth. And so I see a lot of that coming together in what happened this weekend with the People's Climate March. Um, we had uh, over 100 buses. There were over 500 buses that came in. Uh, for the People's Cl Climate March, a, a hundred of those that Sierra Club to help to organize. And we had a model where we wanted this not just to be about one Sunday in September, but the longer term work of the organization. So we were doing training prior to people getting on the bus, training on the bus, training on the way home. And now there's an expectation that those groups, people who hadn't worked together in communities, will start to do that work together. And Robin was just telling me on the walk over here that she was on a call today in Pennsylvania where people were having that very conversation. Um, and then also it was very meaningful to me that uh, the way the march was organized, that the environmental justice and indigenous groups, the folks who are at the front line of the climate crisis were leading the march. So symbolically saying that these are the folks that we need to follow as we're moving forward. Um, and then the youth were right behind them bringing so much energy and that's the kind of energy that we're going to need as we move forward. So there was, there's a ton that resonates for me in Hari's book about thinking about this question of are we really organizing, are we giving people the kind of context that helps them understand you didn't just come to a march but you're part of this broader movement and there's a way for you to go home and continue to be part of it. And I really hope that Sierra Club is helping people to make that connection because that's what I think is going to sustain our activists and keep them involved for the long haul. This is just great that so many people are here to, to uh, at, at an event on organizing because how do we do this? Okay. Is that good? Is that good? Okay. Because organizing is what we've got to do. <laughs> um, so this is a really exciting research design and compelling conclusions. This idea that organizers focus on transforming people and building capacity, particularly in leadership, is extremely important. I, I, I want to give three examples from my own experience, or from my reading and my experience. Then ask how we can do it and then suggest that it's really hard. And that's the part that I don't think, you mentioned how a little bit in passing, how you don't get that so much from, um, from Hari's book. And, <laughs> and I think that if we don't realize how hard it is, we're, we're not gonna try hard enough to do it. Um, so my first example is the Industrial Areas Foundation. Um, someone once asked Ernie Cortez, who uh, heads up the IAF, how he defined a leader. And he said, a leader is someone who, when she calls a meeting in her living room, some people come. <laughs> and that's really important. In other words, it was 
what, however you get them there, you have gotten them there. That's critical. Um, so the IAF has a very conscious uh, leadership building strategy. And I was part of one of the programs that Ernie designed to give his leaders um, a kind of unusual experience and push them beyond their comfort zones uh, into a creative space. So for several years, and maybe he still does it, he would ask uh, academics from places like Harvard to come down to San Antonio for a weekend. And then the, his leadership group would uh, break into teams. And each team, it was teams that had previously worked together usually, would take a chapter of the academic's book and present it back to the whole group and to the academic um, from the perspective of their own organizing. So that was, uh, these were people who um, had, didn't have um, usually more than a high school education, sometimes didn't have a high school education. They were taking academic books, taking chapters of them, and interpreting them in public to an audience that was four times the size of the people in this room. So this was not an easy thing to do. But because it was about their experience, what they were being asked to do was to interpret it from their experience, they uh, knew what they were talking about. And these were experienced organizers. So although it wasn't in their comfort zone, it was, I talked to a couple other people who did this, and I think it was an invariably a success. Um, and so this is the, Ernie had a genius for kind of creating a time out of time. If you're, an organi if you're doing organizing, you get burned out. It gets boring even. And when it's when sometimes you you don't you know you don't get certain moments like the climate march or whatever it might be you you need sort of up moments um, and uh, you need to think ab about that so this was something in which um, people were able to pull off something that was beyond their everyday capacities and get that experience now the Communist Party USA also focused uh, on creating leadership and they particularly. Uh, directed resources to building leadership in the black community. Um, and in, within the black community, they were among the very first to train African-American women. So af they were able to get women into union positions, into community positions, into political positions. And they were able to build leadership among people who had very little formal education. And importantly, whose jobs, and this was true of also of Ernie's work, whose jobs didn't include speaking or writing or organizing other people. So this is not stuff you could learn on the job. This was stuff you had to learn in your spare time. <laughs> a lot of working people don't have a ton of spare time. So developing this leadership is really critical. And the, and the Communist Party spent, made a conscious focus of that. And my final example is the international movement of violence against women, against violence against women. Um, Laurel Weldon's written a really great piece on this. Um, for a long time, there was a lot of interest in the global north uh, in viol uh, against violence against women. Um, and they couldn't get the global south sort of organized. And finally, they realized, well, they were running the conferences. So they said to the leaders in the global south, you run the conferences. You set the agenda, run the conferences. But the thing, then when they decided to do that, they realized there weren't too many leaders in the global south. So what they had to do was actually fund the organizations that would then produce the leadership, that would then design the conferences, and that would then run the conferences. They had to start way back in actually funding some organizations that would then produce 
their own leadership and their own agendas. And that meant they had to start sort of years before. I mean, once they got that, several years later after that had happened, the Violence Against Women movement took off internationally. I, I think you probably all have heard of different things in different countries. There's hardly a country in the world that doesn't have a very strong group of people arguing against domestic violence, other violence, rape, and so forth, pretty much every country in the world. That's because of this sort of volt fund, this realization on the part of the funders that they they had to kind of let the leadership come up. Okay, now using those three examples, I want to say how hard it is. Um, because you might get the feeling from reading this book that this is a kind of fairly easy thing to do. And I'm going to quote <laughs> from page 64 about Priscilla, quote unquote. You know, just, so Priscilla describes how she attended a training run by the National People for the Environment <coughs> Association which introduced her to the principles of organizing. Once she began to see the difference between organizing events and organizing organizers, which is what she ought to be doing, she began to talk to other leaders to see if they could reorient their work toward organizing rather than mobilizing. And as a team, they made the decision to shift toward organizing. Great. So that kind of makes it seem as if what you have is a, like a cognitive shift. Oh, I see. You know, like we've read Hani's book, and we get it. You know, we're not supposed to mobilize. We're supposed to organize. Great. So that's all you have to do is, like, decide. So she, I mean, in fact, that's the word. You know, uh, they, they could reorient the work. They made a decision to shift. Um, so now, to some degree, that's really true, that you have to get it. You have to decide to do it. And I think this book is very important, because when people realize, read this book, they will realize that this is what you should be doing. Most, most of us aren't there. So, so that big step of realizing is a very important step. But after realizing, you have to do it. And that's a hard part. So each of my three examples of the IAF and the Communist Party and the anti-violence movement, um, and it would be true of the Sierra Club, too are relatively established organizations that are relatively well-funded in various ways. And the CP, of course, was funded by the Soviet Union as part of the Cold War stuff. And so they were able to people who were difficult to, to, to organize. Now, I'm just going to give a little example from my own life back in 1969. I was helping to um, organize something called the Cambridge Women's Center, which is still here down on Pleasant Street. Anybody ever wants to drop in right off of Central Square? And um, we had to paint the building. We bought this building. We had to paint it. And I said, let's, put, let's go on the radio and say, like, on Saturday at 11, come on, come on, everybody come on, come on down to the Cambridge Women's Center and paint it. Because I thought that would bring people people out that, you know, when you're painting, Well, you know, it took more, we all realized it took more effort to do that than it would to just pick up the damn <laughs> <laughs> So that's, we did the session. We painted the Women's Center ourselves. It was easier. It's easier to do the other things. It's easier to be the lone wolf. It's even easier to mobilize than it is to do this organizing stuff. And um, the job is made even harder when you set out, uh, when you recognize the tendency of all volunteer organizations to skew toward the, the middle class, the professional class. Um, actually, both in the recruitment and in the conduct of meetings and the follow-up, it's really important to identify the kinds of people who are going to normally get marginalized and make 
make efforts not to kill. Affirmative efforts not to marginalize on that topic. Hari's next. Um, but uh, the, on page six one, I was hoping you would put this up on your slide. Um, is a I hope this like this is just somehow sent out an email or handed from person to person. It's a list of the practices that you can engage in to become one of the organizing organizations. Um, and the first one is, have a leader responsible for recruitment. Totally right. We know that giving people responsibility for something is what a, a major thing, way that kind of thing comes about. Okay, now I, I just have it, but that means that your organization's going to be big, has to be big enough to have one person do recruitment. And it also means that somebody's got to be willing to do recruitment. Now I happen to just become a member of a 17-person faculty uh, organization that's doing um, and is any one of us going to take on that role, I tell you? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I'm not going to. I don't have the time. So I can read this book. I can totally agree with you. I can want to, you know, email this list to everybody I know, and I'm not going to do it. So that's, it's hard. Recognizing that it's hard shouldn't make us say, well, we're not going to do it. It should make us say we are going to do it, but we're going to recognize that it's hard. So I really appreciate what you've been doing in the Sierra Club, and I appreciate your bringing this in front of uh, other people because I think that from now on we can begin to understand how we should really dig deep. Thank you very much. Big hand for the. That was a fantastic uh, opening to the conversation. It's right here. Can I just make one comment to? Yeah. So, um, so Sarah and Jane, those comments are really well taken. And the one um, comment that I just wanted to make is, I think that you're absolutely right about how, how hard it is. I probably downplayed how hard it is in the book. But in my mind, the question in some sense that we should be asking then is, how do we create the conditions that make it possible and likely for organizations to engage in the kind of leadership development work and the organizing that we want them to do? Um, you know, Thea Scotchpole wrote this book where she sort of has this quote where she says, you know, if you look throughout American history, elites, political elites don't organize ordinary people unless the incentives are set up for them to do so, right? Unless it's in their interest to sort of do the hard work that, that you're describing. And so I feel like in some ways, kind of the juncture that we're at, if we think about, you, you know, a lot of democratic organizations, not just the Sierra Club, but others, is how do we sort of restructure, you know, the incentives that they have and that the leaders of organizations have so that they invest in the kind of leadership development and the development of people's agency and, and the things like that that we're asking. And part of what raised that question for me again was when, Sarah, you're talking about how your funding model has shifted from, um, you know, ma right, yeah, with, with, with a shift you know, from having mainly being funded by membership dues to restricted dollars, like it, you know, and it's like you guys are fighting an uphill battle almost to sort of do the organizing work in that context. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of big questions for us to think about on, on, on that front. So. Great. Well, there's obviously a lot of entry points from people's experiences or, or disciplines, areas of study. Questions from the audience? Yeah. If you could say your name and identify yourself. Oh, oh, sure. <laughs> oh, thank you. My name's Jesse Littlewood. I work with uh, a firm called Echo and Company. We're in Davis Square, and we help organizations run digital campaigns, advocacy and fundraising campaigns. And typically, my questions are, how do you scale a model up? But I'd actually like to know how this organizing model scales down to smaller organizations to pick up on a thread. 
And one interesting case that I would like Sarah perhaps to engage on is, if I understand correctly, the Climate March had something like 1,400 individual organizations mm -hmm. that combined to have a, a major impact. And I, I wonder if that is an example of an opportunity where organizing can scale down to smaller groups that don't have the resources like a Sierra Club, but if it's, a, it's also a challenge in a way of finding the time and the resources to engage in a more timely, harder, um, harder work of, of deeper social change. So I get, maybe elaborate on the question. So the, the question is, is it harder for smaller, or relatively harder for smaller organizations to engage in organizing rather than mobilization? And, and maybe part of the subtext from where you're working is maybe digital opportunities to mobilize are especially attractive to smaller organizations compared to doing the hard work Absolutely. of organizing. I, that's a great question. I mean, so, I mean, the way that, I think, so there are a lot of ways to think about this question, but um, I think it is true, like digital opportunities, because of the context within we, that we live in, are a lot more attractive for these small organizations. And part of that is because of what I was trying, the point that I was trying to make before, which is that, you know, there's this narrative out there that the way you build a social movement is through, you know, these like, you know, these shiny new digital tools that we can use and, and things like that, because we haven't really, um, invested in, in this counter narrative about the importance of the organizing work and the, and the work that goes on within organizations. Um, so I think part of the answer to your question is, you know, this question about the context, right? How do we sort of create conditions that create incentives for organizations to develop, to invest in the kind of organizing work that we want to? But then the other side of it um, is that in some ways I think organizing is easier for small organizations because organizing is really about sort of developing you know, volunteer capacity. And so for organizations that are working on small budgets that don't have a lot of people, you know, doing this kind of leadership development that develops the capacity of volunteers to engage in the work that, like Sarah was describing, that like often, you know, we would think of staff organizers doing, it enables them to sort of get to scale or to sort of do, have bigger impact than they would if they were just relying on paid staff um, to, you know, to do the sort of um, broader but not deep work. So before Sarah, can I, elaborate, ask you yeah. a follow-up yeah. on it. So the organizations in Hari's book are not actually the Sierra Club and the, I don't know, a doctor's associate, I don't know which one it is, but it's actually chapters of those larger organizations. So those are the paired case studies, is the chapters. And right. so I guess the question is, do you think of a chapter as significantly different from a small organization, or is it a small organization? It would be significantly different if they were getting huge amounts of staff support and money from the center, but if they're kind of on their own, then they are a small yeah. organization. Yeah, no, that's a great point. The, the organizations in the book, so they were all um, local chapters of a larger national organization, right? So the Here Club has a national organization, but they have all these local chapters across, you know, over 300 local groups and chapters across the country that um, that work in at, at the city and the state level. And so that's what I was studying. And most and those local organizations, both the Sierra Club and the other organization I was looking at, um, either have zero staff support or very little staff support. And now, in some cases in the Sierra Club, there are like there are um, national campaign staff from Beyond Coal and other situations that would work in the same local area. But a lot of the work of the um, groups in the study were smaller groups and they had the institutional support of the Sierra Club but didn't necessarily have the resource the financial resources that you might think of. The first groups that I thought of I think pr prove your point. I was thinking about the work that I'm doing in the, the B initiative which is building in, uh, equity and alignment for greater impact so it's 26 EJ groups 
for mainstream environmental groups and for EJ funders. EJ group is environmental oh, justice. Oh, sorry, environmental justice. And um, those small local frontline groups that actually have a coal plant, you know, right in their community or they're facing some kind of uh, fracking or drilling in their community, um, they do incredible uh, grassroots organizing. And, and part of that, I think, may be because they have that motivation. Either they do it or their community is really deeply impacted, whereas for other groups that may be small, but it's more theoretical or more um, just out, kind of out of, you know, a, a sense of wanting to do mm -hmm. well in the world, it may, may not have that sense of impact. So I think it um, underscores your point about really what, how do you get that motivation that forces to go beyond just doing the mobilizing? Mm -hmm. Hi, thank you so much. My name is Jesse. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School. And in recognition of the very true fact that organizing is hard, um, I wanted to ask a historical question about whether or not you think it's getting harder. Because um, a lot of people have argued that over the course of American history, sort of the outsourcing of civic duty to national advocacy organizations, how is that changing um, organizing and whether it's getting harder? I mean, I'm sure Jane would have some, some, some thoughts on this, having spent a career looking at this. But, you know, I, I can say, I mean, certainly there's been, I mean, there's all sorts of evidence that shows that the American politics has become so much more professionalized now than, than it used to be. And that along with that professionalization of American politics is also this, I think, broader trend towards the consumerization of politics in a way so that we think about this effort to get people involved not so much as, um, not so much as an exercise in sort of building citizenship and building leadership, but we think of it more as kind of a marketing exercise, right? How can I, you know, design a pitch in a way that's going get to get people to sort of sign my petition in the same way they might like buy my ketchup, right, or buy this box of cereal? And so when you think about sort of citizenship in that way, then it, then, then yes, it does make organizing really hard because we don't have the sort of structures or systems in place that lead us to think about questions about how we develop citizenship and leadership and, and things like that. So I think it is hard, but then on the flip side, I also see um, a lot of organizations that, you know, that are sort of beginning to sort of realize the limits of mobilizing alone and are thinking hard about how they can invest in, in, in organizing or some blend of that and other strategies. And, you know, so an example that I'll give is, you know, so move on. Um, you know, last year I was here at the Ash Center, I think it was last year, when Dave Carfrey wrote this book about move on came and, and he talks about move on as being at like the vanguard of, of the of a lot of organizations that use digital technologies as a way of reaching out to people and what they did you know back in the late 1990s was really revolutionary at the time but now it's just old hacks everyone does what, what move on does um, and you know what move on do is after you know in the early 2000s after a few years of relying exclusively on an online strategy they began to realize the limits of doing just that and began to sort of experiment with different ways of developing leadership councils of now they have um, I can't remember what their team is called. It's like a turbo leadership team or, or something that, you know, try, I can't remember. I mean, they have these like fancy names for it, but they, you know, they try to sort of think about how they sort of take this pool of people that I've identified as being interested in issues and then develop leadership in a way that gives them more depth. And so, you know, on the one hand, yes, I think it is getting hard because of these broader trends in politics. But on the other hand, you also see organizations that are, are, are really intentional and cognizant about the challenges that they're facing. Yeah. I I started as, uh, I was recruited as a student on campus at Indiana University and coming out of Earth Day 1990. And so in my 
however many years, 24 years in this movement. Um, part of it is that it's gotten easier because back then people weren't talking as much about environment, certainly not about climate. That's probably not enough time to compare it to um, some of the really rich organizing that happened in, in um, earlier generations. But something that struck me over the weekend, I brought my sister to, with me to the march. It was her first time to ever to do anything like this. And um, I took her with me on Saturday before the march on Sunday to the youth convergence. And it was pretty funny walking through this, this space. There were you know people standing in circles, and I said, yeah, we do a lot of standing in circles. And <laughs> we'll often go around and everyone will say one word for how they're feeling. <laughs> or then people were voting or chanting. It was just, I, I realized that she didn't have any context for the kind of things that we were doing. It was so outside of her experience. And then she also said, I asked around to my friends and told them I was coming with you to this march and none of them even knew it was happening. And I said, so how do you think we reach them? And she said, I think you'll have to do an ad. <laughs> so her, I mean, it does seem like the, the whole context has really changed, where the having this sense of, of citizenship and activism where one person talks to another is really outside of the daily experience of so many people. And so in that way, I do think it has gotten harder. I, I agree that it has gotten harder for that reason at the same time that that the excitement of social media has has done its own has its own dynamic. The thing that I would say is it's incredibly hard to predict today what this is going to look like tomorrow. So nobody really predicted the environmental movement, nobody predicted the civil rights movement, nobody predicted the feminist movement. And what's going to happen we just don't know. So it, you have to be a little bit like Machiavelli um, said about there's Fortuna, you know, there are these kind of waves. You have to be ready to catch them. You've, you've got to be ready to, to, to go when the opportunity opens itself. And, um, and so that's why I think this book is, is very useful because it really gives you a, a kind of manual. When you can act, how should you act? Well, here's some good ways. Does anybody think it's gotten easier? I mean, let me just make the devil's... So political repression is certainly less even in the United States than even in, you know, not completely recent memory, but, mm -hmm. but you don't have to go so far back at all, right? So and some people in this room have experienced it directly. Right? And um, so I think that's a lot less. So in that way, I think organizing has to be a little bit easier. And then um, if you look at some of the survey evidence, young people are much more drawn to non-conventional non forms of partic political participation and engagement than the mainstream forms like voting and so on. And so at least the potential for it to be easier in that dimension is there. One of the things we certainly discovered in Obama 2007-8 was that given an opportunity to learn basic organizing skills, there was an enormous appetite, and, 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 and people were into it. It was a great opportunity to develop their own capacity. What the Obama organization did with it is a different question. But in terms of the whole campaign, it really, everybody was saying, oh, people don't care and nobody will volunteer. That was the whole rap. Well, that turned out to be a rap full of, well, I won't 
I won't be a poet about it. No, no, but it was, it, was, it was a demonstration of the fact that people have an enormous appetite, desire to make a difference. And given an opportunity, the support, the structure, the training for it, uh, people are going to take up on it when, it's some, when it really matters. I should say the model that we used in those, uh, Obama was developed in Sierra Club with the leadership development project that Sierra, that um, Sarah was, uh, was mentioning. The other thing I just wanted to pose is a question is, why does this phenomenon of organizing hard and all that be so much, seem to be so much confined to the progressive side of the spectrum? The NRA seems to do just fine with 13,000 gun clubs. And, and the right to life people have done just fine. And um, I'm just wondering, it seems to be a, a phenomenon that seems to be more on the progressive side than on the conservative side, who seem to still do quite well in terms, I mean, the Tea Party was not a social media event. I mean, if anything, it was rooted in traditional organizing. So I'm kind of wondering about that asymmetry. To the asymmetry, I, I can't speak to the Tea Party, but the um, NRA uh, was able to use gun clubs. Um, in other words, they had selective benefits. They had a previously existing uh, system. Um, and uh, what was the other one you, you mentioned? Um, no, before the Tea Party. Well, the, uh, right to life. The Christian Coalition. Oh, oh yes, right. The churches, evangelical churches. In the, for example, in the ERA movement, um, you would go down to the to the state house, uh, and buses would pull up, and they would be the pastor would sit in the bus, the male pastor, and the women from the congregation would go in to, to and if you talk, talked with them and said, "Why are you here?" They said, "Because my pastor said I should," you know should. I mean, that wasn't the only reason, but they were very much organized by the churches. So that's a previously existing organization. We need to use those. I think, sorry, just one thing to ask. I think, I think the, question, the question about the, the right is because like, it wasn't like the organizations on the left didn't have, it's not like the left didn't have the potential to use churches or other organizations like that too, you know, in the 19, if we think back to the 1970s or the early 1980s, but somehow you know, we saw organizations on the right continuing to sort of organize in, in, in that way, in a way that um, organizations on the left didn't. And so you know, I think this is, this is where this whole idea of like, we, we have certain strategies that we have in our head that become reinforced from generation to generation that make it harder and harder, you know, if, if we're not seeing models of other ways of doing engagement that are present in the kind of movement that, that you're a part of. Um, Alex. Second your suggestion, Archon, that I think in some ways it might have gotten easier. I mean, the amount of repression in when I think of what the major organizing efforts in American history have been, most of them encountered much more severe repression. But, but that's a, the, the question that I have, and this this may be just from so f so out of the blue that it's nonsensical. But, um, but whether this the the organizing um, and mobilizing dichotomy for me has an echo to the debates within the left in the first half of the 20th century between wanting to have a vanguard party and a membership party. Um, and those were powerful, were extremely widespread international debates, largely between communists and, so, and social democrats. And I'm, you know, I'm just, does, is that, I don't know. Is it, what, what's a vanguard party? I don't know. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have to do a little more background. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, the, yeah, I mean, this, 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 this was, this was, a, 
this was really in the, in the split between the communists and the socialists, the, the model of a vanguard party, which is a party really of organizers. Okay, um, and you know, and that that was the most you know that was the most critical thing. Now, I mean, I think probably this question is is I mean, I, I'm I'm struck that there is a parallel to to an earlier very widespread international debate. And I was just, you know, I was just. Yeah, I mean, so, I, so obviously over that. my question, I don't know the history of that right, particular, right. Um, you know, I mean, when you said membership party, that at first I thought that like, oh, the membership party would be the one that would be th think of, thought of as organizers, right? So if the Vanguard party is the one that has like a small elite that's controlling things, I would not think about that as being one that's consistent with the sort of definition of organizing that I was using in the book. Oh, I see, so it's, a, it's, a, it's elected leadership. Pat McCormick and uh, Kennedy School alum. Professionally, I'm doing ed reform, but as a community activist focused on uh, urban design, homelessness, and transportation. Um, so, you know, it sounds like everyone is talking about the ideal combination of traditional and in-person and online. And uh, it's, um, I guess I want to ask about online, which isn't to say it's either or, but I'm wondering from, from all of your experience, you know, now that we're a few years into social media and other organizing principles, if we think back to say, um, here comes everybody, Clay Shirky's book where maybe organizations are less important and it's a peer-to-peer -peer membership and leadership is uh, like an open source software much more about retaining uh, through a meritocracy and transparency the respect of peers versus a role I might play in an organization. Um, those were some of the things that maybe haven't come to pass in terms of the optimism of online organizing. We've also seen some of the pessimism around astroturf organizing, slacktivism, where people think they're involved, but it's just because they're clicking through. So if we think about that idea of organizing um, versus mobilizing online, it seems like the line is, is fuzzier and harder in some ways, although to Arkan's point, easier to scale and reach people. So I just wonder to what extent is you know, are you finding that online is turbocharging the offline or not helping as much as we thought it would? So, um, so I think, so I think, so I've seen, you know, I think you can do good organizing online just like you can do good, good organizing offline and you can do bad, you know, organizing both online and offline. So, that, so, the, so like, like you say, it's not so much about the tool, but it's more about how you use it. Um, but, you know, I think your question in some ways kind of gets back to, I think, the point that Marshall made earlier, which is that, you know, when, when, you, when in the Obama campaign they gave people the opportunity and the, the infrastructure and the support and the tools to sort of act on, there was this real hunger and this appetite for people out there that wanted to do that. And I think that's true that in some ways the question with online tools in my mind right now is, how can we use it in a way to exercise the kind of leadership that traditionally was done offline, right, but to sort of, in the same way, provide the kind of institutional support that people need to begin to develop their own agency to act, you know, 
on issues that they care about, right, in, in ways that we want. And, you know, because I feel like in some ways a lot of, a lot of what we're talking about is this question of how do you develop people's capacity to act? And, and you know, I think part of what the argument about organizing is, is that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't happen by magic, right? And people aren't born with it. But instead, you need these institutional supports in this space to create, to create those, those capacities. And so there are some, you know, I have a colleague um, named Zainab Tufekye who is down at UNC. And one of the questions that she's asking in her work, she studies the online space basically, is what are, you know, can we use online tools really to sort of develop agency in that way? And there are, you know, some organizations I think that are really at the cusp of that, but I don't think we've seen any great examples that have been worked that have worked at scale. But there are a lot of good people working on it. At Sierra Club, we found that uh, we we feel very proud of our work to do online, online, online to offline. offline. So where we're doing uh, using message, uh, action alerts and getting then finding out who those people are that took action, and inviting them to join our teams, doing work in the community. Uh, we had a platform where we were trying to see if we could do just offline work. Just um, online or just offline? I'm sorry, just online work. Um, and we had a meeting that we invited Marshall to come to. I remember an argument about whether or not people would, without organizing, are people going to take action? And um, the argument was if we, if we just ask people to do it, they'll do it. And that platform didn't ultimately work. We're, but we're now going out and trying to develop another platform with one of the major theories behind it being that we want people to take leadership. So leadership being that they're not just doing the action themselves, but there are people who are gathering with them and doing that together. And can that all work online? And we're very hopeful that it can, but it's going to take the kind of coaching and mentoring and organizing that offline work does as well. So the idea is that you do all of the leadership development and organizing work, but online so that the people organizing other people maybe have never met each other face to face. Mm -hmm. That's the yep. objective. Uh, here. Yeah, yeah. Hi. Oh, thanks. Hi, my name is Emily. I'm uh, at the Ash Center as a graduate student. And, um, my own research looks at the effects of NGOs in India on state capacity to provide basic education. And I'm looking at variation in different NGO strategies and modes of engagement with the government and with the education system. And I've been struck in my own research by, you know, a lot of times these different modes of engagement or activities are framed in strategic terms as if this is just a choice on the part of the organization. I'm really interested in kind of the structural factors um, within organizations in the context in which they're working that determine or shape which kind of bucket of activity they land in. Um, funding structure, where your funding comes from, um, size of the organization, how professionalized your staff is, and what kind of human capital you have access to. And then also based on what issue you work in, or is it sort of an identity-based issue that you can helps you mobilize in particular ways. So I'm wondering in your work um, whether you saw structural factors to do with the types of organizations and what resources they have and challenges they face related to that that might shape which bucket they land in? So, um, so in this particular study, the way it was set up, I was, I was looking at local organizations of two, of two national organizations, right? So there are some structural factors that, I, that, that didn't vary across these organizations, so I couldn't, I couldn't see them. But I will say that among these local, the local organizations I looked at, you know, one of the questions I asked is, well, how do the organizers become organizers, right? And there are a couple, um, there are a couple trends that I saw Right. One was, so for example, in several instances, what, I, what you saw was that 
there was some kind of um, either resource constraint or abundance that led them to search for different strategies. So what I mean by that was that in one situation, for example, there was an organization that had to organize like a large rural area and there just wasn't, they weren't, they simply didn't have the staff support to be able to do that with just paid staff. And so it was the kind of lack of resources that forced them to think, well, what can we do? Well, we have to, we're going to have to rely on volunteers and that means we're going to rely on them and we're going to give them actual responsibility. Then we have to train them, we have to figure out how to equip them, and then that led them down this sort of organizing path, right? Um, in another situation, there's an organization that was working in a state that was a battleground state for a presidential election. And so all of a sudden, through the presidential election, they saw a huge influx of volunteers come because of all the sort of like external stuff that was going on in that state. And they were like, oh, gee, you know, like, how do we deal with this? And so again, it was like the abundance of volunteers that made them realize we need some people who can take leadership to manage this huge influx of people that came. And so, you know, it's sort of like there were, um, you know, there were those different kind of like external circumstances that would lead it. But then ultimately, inside the organization, you needed, there usually was some leader who had, who knew to think about organizing as a model, right? Like, how do you begin to sort of, and this is before the Sierra Club had begun to sort of, its whole training program to sort of try to shift things, sort of like, how do you, you know, how do you, when you have, face a situation of resource constraint or resource abundance, like how do you begin to think like, oh, the way I'm going to deal with that is by training a group of volunteers. And so in some cases, there are people that had done work on the Obama campaign and, and transferred those, those skills over. In other cases, it was, you know, people who had been, you know, had been activists in other organizations for a long time and, and brought those, those skills over. So it's sort of the combination of, you know, individuals who had had experiences elsewhere that they could bring over in combination with sort of external conditions that, that made things possible. You know, and that, and that whole idea of individuals who had experiences elsewhere, this is why I think it's so important to begin thinking about in the progressive movement how we begin to sort of spread those kind of experiences out so that you have more people who think about it when they face those situations. Thank you. I'm Pedro from, I'm a student at the Kennedy School. And I just was wondering, um, do you think that um, organizing, uh, for example, against an injustice as, as, as a cause is easiest than organizing like for a positive cause? Um, yeah. I mean, this is one of the questions that you guys were asking, uh -huh. right, in, in, the, yeah. in the climate, but I don't know if you want to speak to that. Sure, that's, yeah. that's exactly at the heart of uh, what we were discussing. Um, the Climate Movement Task Force, and we are going to, to try to, to mobilize and organize people around 100% clean energy because we feel like part of what the climate movement needs right now is optimism and an idea that there are solutions available to something that sometimes is so huge that it's overwhelming people and overwhelming their ability to get involved. And I also think it's easier to organize th against things that are bad. So I think that we're going to, as we go into it, we're going to probably find that it's some combination of both. Um, so you chose the route that is actually going to make it harder for you to organize? We chose a route that we feel like will give us a vision that we can organize people around. But I think that we're going to have to insert some kind of urgency that has to do with a, a problem um, and some bad guys. <laughs> I think there's no way that we're going to get around having bad guys as part of the story. I mean, that's, that's part of organizing. 
And I, I will say the research on this shows that it's a combination, it's a, it's a tension between sort of the hope and the challenge, right? Between the threat and the hope that there's something's possible. Because if it's all threat, then it's debilitating, right? Well, what, what, what's the point, right? I might as well go home. And if it's, if it, if, if, and if it's all hope, then it feels like, well, what's the urgency? Why should I take it? And so the research shows it's a tension between those two things that, um, you know, that tends to, to engage people. We have time for one more question. Hi, uh, my name is Canyon. I'm a senior at the college, and I co-coordinate the campaign to get Harvard to divest from fossil fuels. And one one of the things that we're really struggling with as organizers right now is this intense want to like build community and personal relations within our, in our group um, as organizers because we feel like that's really an important part of the movement and also like actively develop these skill sets like you're talking about and have our general just like strategizing for the campaign and all of that while also like planning these actions where we need to do serious outreach and like mobilization. Um, and I feel like right now we're struggling with basically people just not having time, just overcommitted Harvard students, basically. And kind of struggling with the trade-off between like doing this really important, I guess what you would call organizing, of like building skills and these different things, versus mobilizing and actually getting like hundreds, trying to get hundreds of people who don't want to actually be part of the organizing to like come back to things. So I think it's, that's a trade-off that we're struggling with, and I wonder how you deal with that. <laughs> what I can tell you is that you're not alone. I mean, Sierra Club's organizers struggle with this all the time because they feel immense pressure to achieve the outcomes of their campaigns, but that's why we have this separate set of metrics and measurements that we're using that are about these transformational outcomes um, that we believe will make us more sustainable for the long term. So I think that it is right for you to be struggling with that and <laughs> encourage you to keep doing that and, and building that. Uh, organizing at its heart is about relationships and about relationships that will sustain beyond the campaign that you're working on right now. Um, and not everybody will want to be in for that level of activity, um, but that a core of people are really grappling with that I think is the right way to go. I, mean, I think in my experience, I've seen a lot of organizations where, I mean, it, it feels like a tension in every organization yeah. that I've, I've seen, so I agree with Sarah on that. But a lot of organizations, I think it's, you know, you, you get to the point where you begin to sort of think of it not as an either or, so it's not like we either can do this or, you know, either we can organize or we mobilize, but you figure out sort of how to mobilize in such a way that builds relational capacity and sort of, you know, d um, you know, reaches the people that you, you know, the depth of people, the breadth of people that you want while building you know the the relational core of the of the leaders that are doing the work and and kind of finding that tricky balance is 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 really the challenge. Um, but just on this point about metrics that Sarah said, you know, on the Obama campaign, which is what this other book is that I was working on, you know, one of the stories that Jeremy Bird, who was a national field director in 2012, tells is that when he was a state director in Ohio in 2008, the national headquarters was sending him all these you know, messages saying like, you know, the number one thing we care about is voter contact, right? And we want to see your voter contact numbers go up and up and up and up and up throughout the summer because that's how we're going to know that we're going to get more people out for Obama um, on election day. And at a certain point, 
you know, he was saying, like, that doesn't make sense, right? Because if we only invest in voter contact right now, what we're not doing is we're not doing the work of developing our teams, developing our leaders on the ground. And so they, so in Ohio, what he did was he made the decision to jettison the voter contact numbers for the summer. And so he wasn't tracking that. And what he was doing in the summer leading up to the election is he was tracking things like how many neighborhood team leaders have you recruited? How many one-on-one -on -one meetings did you have? And he was, you know, the outcomes that he was tracking were these, like, capacity building outcomes so that you know after Labor Day came and they switched to voter contact they had a much bigger base of leaders who could then be unleashed to engage in those more transactional outcomes that got them you know got them the votes on election day and so you know and that I think that the point that Sarah makes is really important because it's about one we have to sort of rethink what are the outcomes that we care about right and, and two there's sort of like a, a, a patience with you know with the capacity building that um, that organizations have to invest in. Um, I think that the word relationship covers a very large number of things. And in this relationship building, when I think of, for example, the Industrial Areas Foundation, it's, um, there's a, a work-related relationship. And uh, when you're in college, one of your, as Erickson, Eric Erickson used to say, you know, oh, one of your sort of tasks is to build your identity. And that means finding out who you're, who, you know, creating enemies and it, and it, it requires sort of all sorts of plumbing of self. And this could go on for a very long time and it can take up a, a lot of evenings and it can lead to a lot of anger and love affairs and, you know, breakups and all that. And I think that so, so when you're building relationships, it doesn't mean sort of that the relationship should necessarily be all consuming. <laughs> and, and I think that's the, the, the idea that that you can that an organization and a group of people a team can can go through um a sort of cycles in which there's time for sort of action and and time for reflection um and then time for some more action um that that maybe if you can get your group to kind of agree that there's uh, sets of times for different things because I'm not sure whether I'm reading you right but I've been in organizations um, where we spend an awful lot of time on ourselves and I thought for me in, in the fem in the women's movement that was incredibly important because myself was the movement <laughs> I mean you know the, the we were trying to figure out what women's movement what what what, what women ought to be like uh, I mean we, we, it was that basic, sort of where should we be going? So the self-reflection was incredibly important and the personal was political, but um, that it can also get out of hand. And so I just wanted to kind of say that if if one of your problems is, is that the relationships are getting out of control, then you can address that uh, as, a, as, a, as a subject. Um, so that Thank you, you know, at the Kennedy School, I think every single thing that we we actually do it involves trying to bring together scholars and practitioners or the scholarship side and the practice side to make things happen that neither could achieve on their own and that is a really hard thing to do I think we try it all the time but seldom succeed and I regard this conversation as a marvelous success in that regard so thank you very much